You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I want to start again this week by referring you back to wealthformula.com. That's where you can sign up for the weekly wealth widget. That's the new form of my newsletter to the Wealth Formula Nation. Essentially, what we're doing in that is once a week, I'm giving you a bite-sized morsel of financial education. A lot of this stuff, for some of those of you who are a little bit more sophisticated, might be review, but for a lot of folks out there who are doctors, engineers, et cetera, have been spending their entire lives trying to learn these specialized skill sets, it's not going to be review. It is going to be language that you really need to know if you're going to get into this world of investing probably have some stuff in there regarding the equity markets as well. I mean, because then otherwise you're going to have these financial planners talking circles around you in hopes of you not understanding anything. So go to wealthformula.com, sign up for the weekly wealth widget. We have a new sponsor as well. It is Eve Pickers Group, and that is a business called Small Change. Now, I should point out they actually have a raise going right now. They should check out at smallchange.com. It's a crowdfunding portal. Right now, they are looking to raise some debt for some luxury, efficient townhouses in Los Angeles and also some affordable housing in D.C. Both of the offerings have a 10% projected return. Full return of interest and capital is anticipated around 12 months. So go to smallchange.com and download their investor packet. Check that out now. Let's move on with the show. Now, should you always invest in things with the highest returns? Well, that's an interesting question because when I first started investing, that's all I cared about. When I bought my first apartment building, I did the numbers and looked at the tax returns and it looked like I was going to get something over 25% cash on cash. And well, it didn't turn out that way. And some of you, a lot of you who've listened to this show actually know that story, but it was a D-class apartment building that I couldn't manage. I kind of got bamboozled into buying it and basically it didn't work out for me. So no, I did not make 25%. In fact, I lost money. And I look back on those days and that was uh, several years ago. I'd look at that mistake as the price of education for learning how to do real estate better. And the good news is the mistakes I made on that property were never made again. And fortunately, knock on wood, not to say that this is going to always be the case, but I've not lost money on real estate ever since then. One of my lessons from that experience was that, you know, you just can't look at just the numbers. I mean, investing is more than just a numbers game. And certainly it matters. You're not going to invest in something that projects at 0% returns, but you have to look at the whole pictures. In the case of this building that I'm talking about, why does a class D building, why did it have potential for such high returns? Well, because they're a bigger risk. And it is often the case that returns correlate to risk. And we have to keep that in mind. And as you may know, I do own multiple businesses. So businesses trade very differently than real estate. Right now, for example, you know, medical businesses like some of the ones that I own have valuations. You know, we've looked into this at possible times when we thought about possibly selling of 10 times the operating income. And that sounds really pretty high, right? And for a business, it actually is really high. What that means is if I made you know, $2 million in profit in a business that the, the business would be valued at 
something around $20 million. So wow, right? I mean, you get a lot of money there. That sounds great. But wait, in real estate terms, if we take a step back and look at what those numbers mean in a different language, in the language of real estate, that means a capitalization rate of 10. So if you're selling a property, if you're selling an apartment building, selling at a capitalization rate of 10 is not that good. It's nothing that you're going to get too excited about. I mean, shoot, there's people in Dallas right now that are getting cap rates of of below six, so 20x of earnings for their property. So why the disparity, right? Why the disparity, you might ask? Well, one is that business has many moving parts. Businesses are different from you know apartment buildings and other real estate asset. It relies on operations around running a business. The assets are the brand, the management, and maybe some of the goodwill uh, from previous customers or referral sources. Buying a business like this from me has far more risk than buying an apartment building from me with the same net operating income. Therefore, the valuation is different. The moral of the story, yield correlates with perceived risk. Now, let's be clear. How people perceive risk is quite variable. For example, to me, buying a stable B or C class apartment building does not feel terribly risky. So I get to take advantage of relatively higher returns that this class of property yields compared to someone that, say, feels only comfortable investing in super luxury apartments where only the affluent reside. You know, because those tend to have even lower cap rates. So anyway, get the picture that hopefully that makes sense. The reality is there are, you know, all sorts of variables that dictate risk and, and then therefore yield. So let's take another example. Did you know that timber, you know, wood has outperformed stocks, long-term corporate bonds, gold, and real estate for over a hundred years? So why are we not all buying more timber? Well, maybe it's because it's not liquid for several years. I mean, you got to wait for the stuff to grow, right? You know, so there's a premium for waiting for your money. There's a premium for not being liquid. So these are all ways that you have to factor in when you're determining what kind of return on investment to expect. Going back to timber, there's a billionaire hedge fund manager. There was, I don't know if he's still alive yet. Jeremy Grantham, who once said that timber is the only low risk high return asset class in existence. Well, that alone is worth learning more about it, isn't it? So when we return, we're going to do just that. We're going to speak with Alex Wilson of Precious Timber. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Alex Wilson, the Chief Executive Officer of Precious Timber. Now, Precious Timber is a dedicated and environmentally focused alternative agriculture development company. The company's focus is on people, planet, and profit, with the primary vision of helping individuals and institutions find risk-adverse investments, assets that produce above-average financial returns in the rapidly advancing Nicaraguan emerging marketplace. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Buck. It's a pleasure to be on. So I just want to kind of start out because, you know, we met on the Real Estate Guys Summit, and I had heard you on other shows before, and... I always wanted to get you on the show and kind of ask you, from my perspective, some things about timber. Before we get started on that, tell us how you got all started with this. I mean, how did you end up doing Precious Timber? Well, it's kind of backed into the timber space, to be honest with you. 
my good friend who became my partner, I came to the U.S. in 1986 and met a construction buddy who loved to surf and got to know him pretty well. And in the mid-90s, he and I started talking about, you know, how we invested. He was investing in some real estate. I was also in Orange County, California, doing the same. I ended up using his company for some of the remodels that I did. And by 1999, I was looking to invest more internationally. And an article came across my desk. It was through a mail order piece talking about Central American real estate along the coastline of Nicaragua. And it was kind of intriguing to me. My business partner and friend at the time said, hey, I've been down there many times surfing, surf Costa Rica, surf Guatemala, surf Honduras, even surf Nicaragua in 93. So he had some knowledge of the area. I passed through there traveling as a kid, as a youth, I would say, in my 17, 18 age bracket. So I really couldn't remember too much about it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, long story short, we decided to take a trip down. And we went to see this one particular development that was just getting started. It was an unbelievable trip. Of course, the people were very friendly. Obviously, third world country, so stock sort of shot in some of the visuals that you see for those people that have not been to those parts of the world. But what really struck me, Buck, was the fee simple ownership of land. You could actually buy and hold the title in your name. And that particular in the 2000s, I think it was like March 2000, First American Title Insurance had opened up an office in Managua, the capital city of Nicaragua, and they were selling title insurance policies. And so for me as an investor, it had all of the right stop gaps and all of the right things that you look at. And of course, prices were exceptionally cheap. I mean, land was insanely inexpensive. So Ken and I bought some property to sit on, but within a year... Condé Nast Traveler and LA Times and New York Times and lots of publications were talking about Nicaragua to possibly become a travel destination. And so we started a land development company and we're very successful in that. But in 2004, and this is a crazy story to get to the answer, but in 2004, we were approached by a family, a Nicaraguan family that had a large parcel of land for sale, almost 1,700 acres. It wasn't on the ocean, which is where we normally like to purchase. Obviously, when you're developing houses and residential communities, you want it to be as close to the sand as possible for expats. But this was a very special piece. It was a jungle, and it had lots of monkeys in the fabulous valleys and peaks. And the family wanted to spend a little money to get children off uh, fishing. And so it was an affordable piece for us, and it was a good deed. So we bought the property. That's how we accessed timber, but we didn't really know what we were buying on this beautiful views. It wasn't until a couple of years later when one of our employees asked us what we were going to do with the valuable timber standing on the property. That's when we learned about timber as an asset class. So we backed into it is, is the answer. And then obviously, this wasn't something that you were thinking about. How do you learn about? I mean, what do you do from there? I mean, now you presumably, this is still about a decade ago, and you know that you might be sitting on a fairly precious commodity. I mean, how did you go from there to ultimately creating this company? Well, I came home and was curious, being an investor, so I was curious about this thing called timber. Obviously, we purchased wood 
for many years in the building trade. But I started poking around online and I came across the Naycreef Timberland Index. And actually, it was talking about timber as an asset class, not as a commodity. And so I dig deeper into the Naycreef Timberland Index, and it was kind of shocking to see that the returns from timber, and the Naycreef Index, by the way, tracks North American timber. We're talking about Central American, very valuable, rare, and tropical hardwoods, whereas the Naycreef Index tracks the softwoods mainly up in the U.S. But the ROI was staggering when I looked at the numbers. It averaged about 14% a year. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's got to be one of the best performances, you know, ever. And so as I dug deeper, what I also discovered was an asset class that had been focused upon primarily by institutions, endowments, right after the ERISA laws changed in the early 80s. These organizations and these large multi-billion dollar portfolios were investing in timber. Also, very high net worth individuals like Ted Turner and John Malone, Comcast, and of course, Turner Broadcasting. So I have Jeff Bezos, and you could go down the list of billionaires. And what struck me the most, it was a place where they were growing money, non-correlated to the regular marketplace. In other words, biology was growing their money and not market timing or economic conditions. And at 14% a year click, that's a nice way to grow a portfolio. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit more about this asset class. So it is unique. Obviously, this is not something that this is not a cash flow type play, etc. You know, describe a little bit about how an investment in timber generally works. I know there are different kinds of timber as well, but how something like this works and maybe the typical investor that you've seen that's been attracted to them. Yeah, there's many ways to get in the timber space. Obviously, we're talking today about what I call a pure play, meaning you actually own the forest, you own the land, you own the trees. Obviously, you can buy into publicly traded companies. You can buy into real estate investment trusts. There's many ways to own timber, but the ROIs in the double-digit range generally come from owning the asset class, owning the real tangible dirt. It is a long-term play, of course, so it's not for everyone. In fact, I always tell people when they're looking at agriculture, you know, agriculture is farming, and farming can be very, very tricky and very, very risky. The one thing about timber is there's really not a whole lot can go wrong. Obviously, there are risks to everything, but you've got to be a patient investor. Several years ago, Bob Rice's tremendous investment book, The Alternative Answer, and inside that book, there was a term called the illiquidity premium. I had never heard the the phrase before. Basically, an illiquidity premium is the added extra rate of return an investor earns for holding less than liquid assets. So, Someone that's looking at timber must have a pretty decent, you know, 10, 15, 20 year time frame. So it's more from a capital appreciation, wealth preservation strategy. You know, you're not going to get a lot of income from it. Obviously, you can do things inside the forest. You can crowd plant. You can ladder harvest. But really, it's a place to grow money, store money, protect money. And of course, for legacy investors, it's, it's ideal. Right. So let's talk about 
you know, obviously, if so now you're going to be illiquid for a while. What kinds of time horizons are we talking about? And, you know, again, feel free to sort of talk about the different types of timber involved, because I know there are different types of timelines associated with those and, and frankly, different returns, right? Absolutely. And of course, add to that the geographical location. I mean, if you're investing in timber in the U.S., you better have an even longer time frame. Geographically, it's, you know, the climate's very different. Down in Central America, where we are on the border of Costa Rica and Nicaragua, we get 365 days a year sunshine. We get 95 degree weather. We get 250 inches of rain. So volcanic soils, all of the conditions are perfect for what we're doing. But some of the species that we grow, mahogany species, African mahoganies, local Pacific mahoganies, we grow cedars, we grow teak, we grow a local cherry called cocobolo. They all have different time frames. For me, what I've learned over the last decade or so is that trees sometimes can be a little bit like humans. They mature at different times. And so I can plant two mahogany trees next to one another, and one might be at the ideal optimal harvest size, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. One could be there in maybe 10 or 12 years, whilst the tree next to it might take 12 to 16 or 18 years. So time frames are something that someone should focus on. Species variety should be also something that someone should focus on, because it's just like the stock market. You don't want all your eggs in one company. Just like timber, you don't want all of your eggs in one variety or one species of trees. But overall, an investor should sort of consider is the main thing is the time frame. I mean, if you have the capacity, if you have the patience, if you're trying to grow money at good rates of return every year, because one of the things that's kind of unique with timber and agriculture overall is that the cyclical nature of economies and markets really don't negatively affect timber. If we take timber as a topic we're on right now, if we take a look at the last 40-year chart, it was only really 2009 where timber had a 5.5% drop in its value. Most of the time, timber's kind of steady. In fact, in 2008, for example, this is kind of unique. When the market dropped, what, almost 40%, timber rose almost 10%. Mm. So it's a very, very strange place. And I often think that, you know, the average person that's investing it's not going to invest in things they're not familiar with. So it's probably a good idea to spend a little time getting familiar with it first, do some education, do some diligence, do some sort of studying. That way, if it does fit your long-term planning and that part of your portfolio, then I think it's something that can seriously be considered. So let's get down in the weeds a little bit more and just to get a little bit more sense of how these things work. Now, if I came to you and I'm 43, you know, I've got three little girls and I'm thinking about a, maybe a 20 year time horizon. And I know there's various kinds of trees, et cetera. Give me an example just for our audience to try to get a sense for how an investor might look at this and say, well, I've got to you know, start paying for college in 10 years and I'm going to need to be liquid by then. Now, what kinds of things can you do? And that's exactly how we work with clients. We don't have a one size fits all kind mm-hmm. of approach. Everybody comes with a thousand different sort of stories and goals sure. and plans. And so we start right there. We say, okay, well, what's the timeline? What's the horizon? And what's the purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? Because if you'll share with us a detailed sort of plan of what you're trying to accomplish and when you're trying to accomplish it by, 
we can then tailor build a plan around that. And so let's talk specifically about one that you hit on and one that I personally have done. I have two girls. My girls are now one of them is in college and the other one's in high school. When I started thinking about, you know, the expenses that that's going to take, I had the choices that I think most everyone else has done. You have your planners tell you the you should probably choose a 529 plan. I did that too. Unfortunately, that didn't work out too good for me after the 2008 crash. But I did choose some local mahoganies and some local cedars. And when I say local, of course, we're talking Central American species. And they tend to have that uh, capability of, of about 25% of what I plant, what I planted, was able to be harvested at year 10, which was perfect because I didn't start kind of when the kids were real young. I started when my kids were seven and eight. And so that's the way we go about it. Let's, if you're in your 50s and you're looking at maybe by the time I'm 65 or 68, I want to start uh, getting an annual income. We can ladder the harvests that way. So we look at the different species. We look at the time frame. We look at the objective. We look at the purpose. And then we'll make some suggestions. Of course, you're going to own the dirt as well. So while the dirt is appreciating uh, nicely, that's not really where you're going to get your cash flow from. You're going to get your cash flow from taking a sapling, turning it into a log, and selling lumber. So at some point, even though there's illiquidity period, you know, as you mentioned, you know, 25% of the trees were ready for harvest that year 10. But then, so there is sort of cash flow that happens later. It doesn't happen. Obviously, you don't get all of your trees and all your money out once. So it's sort of a period of waiting. And then you kind of have a period where you're getting paid, right? Yeah, that's about right. But just also remember that the way we set it up, this is not a pooled approach. I mean, obviously, we do have a fund that is a pooled approach, but most of our clients want to own the dirt as well. They like the idea of real estate ownership. I'm a big real estate investor. And so what I'm getting at is this optimal size you heard me talk about. There's a size in which the tree reaches a point where the value of the tree is not going to continue to grow at the same speed after it gets to a certain size. And so you may as well harvest it at that size. And as I said, the size is what's important, not the age. So if the tree reaches, and I'll give you the numbers, I mean, it's sometimes difficult to follow, but a tree for us and the way lumber is sold is sold across the world by the board foot. And the way you measure and calculate how many board feet are in a log is you measure the diameter of the tree at breast height at about four and a half feet above the ground. Then you measure from the bottom of the trunk all the way to the top of the trunk. And let's just say you have an 18 inch diameter tree with about 24 feet of length. There's about 190 board feet of lumber in that log. And most of these trees that we're talking about today have a value of around $2.45 per board foot. So if you take 190 and you multiply that by $2.45 or so, you've got about a $450 log, which may have cost you about $50 to get there. And if it takes 10 years, Obviously, you can calculate the ROI, and if you take 18 years, you can calculate the ROI. But my point is, maybe you want to cut it down sooner because you need some cash earlier for whatever reason. They're your trees. You cut them down when you want. All you do is, you know, send us the information. Hey, we need, you know, I'm trying to get $25,000 cash by such and such a date. We'll go take a look at the trees. We'll 
calculate the value and the volume of lumber, and we'll make a harvest request. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So I knew about the fund, but this is a turnkey approach, basically, right? I mean, it's similar to you know what some others are doing with coffee, et cetera, that we've had on the show in the past. So effectively, we own the land, but you know you guys are the experts, so you can manage that effectively. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the idea investing in Nicaragua, because obviously, you know, that's something that I think investors are probably thinking, well, gosh, where's Nicaragua? And and is it safe? Is this government that's going to take away my land? I mean, how do you address those questions? Well, I had those questions, too, and, and every one of our investors have and our clients have. And it's a valid point for those of us that maybe a little got a little gray hair by our ears. But the younger investor really didn't have, you know, the knowledge or the history of the Sandinista-Contra sort of revolution. But Nicaragua was, um, you know, it was a, um, an embattled nation. It was run by a dictator almost 100 years. And then the Sandinista group formed and, you know, had a desire to free the country. And so that's what happened. I mean, the U.S. Uh, has used Nicaragua strategically for many, many years, for many decades, even centuries. But it got a little bit bloody after a U.S. news reporter was accidentally killed during the revolution. Then, of course, came the U.S. to come in and help them build their constitution. In 1989, Nicaraguans had the first chance ever in their history to actually vote like we do in a democratically elected sort of process. And so here we are. What's that? Almost 30 years ago now. And so Nicaragua's had a uh, tremendous run over the last 30 years. Now, listen, it's still the second poorest nation in the hemisphere, but the growth and the transformation has been astronomical since 2008, for example. Their economy has been growing at 5.1% GDP. So they're doing something right. They've gone from being highly indebted to almost virtually debt-free. They went from almost a 40% unemployment rate down to, I think, five or six now. They're going to be the first country on the planet in a couple of years to be 100% energy independent. Wages have gone up considerably. The workforce is now fully educated. 97% of the population is educated. And a couple of last points is last year they had 1.3 million tourists, and right now there's about 5,000 North American expats that have decided that they love Nicaragua so much because of its safety numbers. The World Bank and the IMF said Nicaragua is the safest of all Latin American countries on Earth. So a lot of things have changed. I generally provide people with a plethora of information because, quite frankly, you know, don't invest in anything until you understand it. And you wouldn't be able to make a decision about Nicaragua until you got caught up with today's news. Yeah, because one of the additional variables that comes into an investment like this, and to a certain extent, any investment, but you start thinking about it because of the longer horizons, right, is, for example, the stability of the area, also the team itself. I mean, and if we're talking about, in some cases, 20 to 25 year horizons, how big is your team what kind of succession plan do you have within management, et cetera? Can you address some of those? Absolutely. Let's talk about the country first. I mean, obviously now they're not going back to where they once were. There will never be a dictatorship there anymore. They've tasted freedom. They've tasted democracy. And entrepreneurship is vibrant. Of course, direct foreign investment is insane. Large companies and small Cargill, Unilever, 
Johnson and Johnson, we could go down the list. They're all investing in Nicaragua heavily. With respect to where the country's going, I only see it doing what maybe Singapore did. I mean, sometimes it's uh, nice to sit and watch these things happen, but it's even better if you're an investor. Of course, being an early bird, being a pioneer, the odd occasion you can get an arrow in your back, but that's where real sizable upside investment um, potential lies. So it's just like, you know, go back 120 years when people said go west. Somebody had to come to California first. Right. So from that's from the country perspective. Our company started with just the two of us, but now we've grown to we can have as many as 1,500 employees during the planting season, which starts for us in June and goes all the way through till late October. But on average, we have around 250 permanent staff. So we've grown rapidly. We've grown quite large. We have a a tremendous agricultural experienced team around us. I mean, Ken and I are not foresters. We happen to, you know, be the guys that uh, fell backwards into this thing. But we've got tremendous family, the timber business as partners now for more than 35 years. There's the senior father with uh, two sons in their 30s and many, many independent foresters and engineers. So hundreds of years worth of experience. And then with regards to seeing this, you know, I'm 59 and my partner's uh, 61. So it's not like we're ready to to (laughs) quit yet. But, you know, we've got family and we've got people around us. So the successionary plans, you know, we're looking at a couple of 40-year-olds right now that probably be executive sort of positions in the company. So we're planning on this company being around for many, 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 many decades. And one of the reasons that's important, of course, is the jobs that we're creating Nicaraguans, for the most part, obviously the last 20 years have had it different, but for the most part, their history has been where they just had day laborer jobs. And so we're trying desperately hard and we're doing a good job to impact people so that they have a long term career type job so that they can save, go on vacation and dream of things that maybe those of us like you and I take for granted. Right, right, absolutely. You know, I know we talked a lot about sort of the long-term nature of the investment, et cetera, but I remember you telling me a little bit about, you know, for those of us who might be a little bit less patient, and coconuts are an interesting approach, too. It's not quite as uh, long of horizon. It's obviously, uh, you can just see it on your store shelves. It's a hugely growing market there. Yeah, coconuts, that came into sort of view for us about five years ago when my 19-year-old was 14, She came home one day from school and said, Dad, my friend says the best thing for acne is coconut oil. And, of course, Dad's a Brit, so I'm very skeptical of these health-related things. (laughs) I kind of said, hey, that's not going to work, baby. But she proved me wrong. Mom bought her some coconut oil, and she rubbed it on her skin. And within a week, she she was bragging that how great her skin looked. And then within a few days, book, we had... I don't know, a half a dozen different products here from toothpaste to shampoo to coconut milk. And not too many months thereafter, I got a call. Someone from the Dominican Republic was on our website. He was searching for anyone in Central America that was in the agricultural world because he was a coconut buyer, a broker, if you will. And he was, we called and asked if we knew anyone that was growing coconuts. And I said, no, we don't grow them. I know my business partner's wife, her dad has about six trees on his little farm. Would that help you? He said, no, we need at least one and maybe two container loads a day. 
And that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I said, well, we have a lot of land. Tell me about the coconuts. How do they grow? And so long story short, it was a fascinating hour on the phone. Ken and I personally, we're not the most green thumb people on the planet. I can go down to Home Depot and buy a plant and it'll be dead in my house in a week. So we went looking for someone. We sent out one of our employees We told them, go anywhere in Central America. It doesn't matter how far you have to go. I was kind of intrigued. I did the same as I did with timber. I did a lot of research. And like you said, the coconut today is a global commodity. It's in hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of uncorrelated sort of products from biofuel to pet food, from, you know, health food to cosmetics. I mean, you could go through the list. Anyway, we found someone. We found Central America's only certified coconut seed pollinator. He actually was in Nicaragua, is the other side of the country on the Atlantic side. And so we got talking to him and his family had a small plantation. And that certification comes from France. France has been in the coconut business in India for many, many, many decades. Anyway, we hired him and Ken and I planted in 2013 some test trees with our own money, like we always spend our own money first. And we didn't kill them. And in 2014, we planted about 400 acres. And now we have around 2,000 acres. So we've become quite a a sizable coconut company. We're actually going to put a million trees in the ground. So that'll be 10,000 acres. But you're right. The coconut tree, you don't have to wait 10 or 12 or 15 years. Coconuts start producing in year four. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of returns you get on those typically? You know, at today's prices, obviously, it's a commodity, so prices can go up and down. But global coconut prices, now there's two types of coconuts. There's the little brown ones that grow on those very tall trees where in some parts of the world they send up monkeys to take them off the tree. Oh, wow. Uh, We're not growing those. They take seven years to produce, plus they're little tiny things. The price of those nuts are anywhere from 10 to 15 cents across the world. We're growing the very large greens, the Brazilian greens, or the big yellow ones, the Malaysian yellows, Mm -hmm. and also a hybrid version of those. It's called a Maipan, and that's what our lead coconut engineer does. He personally pollinates those. They're about 30 cents. These big nuts are about 30 cents. So if you see them in the supermarket for $2.99, we don't get $2.99 on the farm. We get about 30 cents. But if a tree produces... You know, on average, a tree, a mature tree at about year six is going to produce anywhere from, you know, 120 to 200 nuts. So say 150 nuts. Each tree is going to produce around $50. And so the ROI based on the way we've built it is actually mid-teens. So it's a little bit nicer than, say, the average rental property without the toilets and, you know, all of the things that you and I have got. You know, I got real estate, so while we love it, we love the income, there's a few things that we wish we didn't have to deal with. Yeah, With this being a unique class, if you could just address a couple other questions, let's talk about in terms of taxes. You've got, first it's agricultural, second it's in Nicaragua. How does that work out? Well, of course, with coconuts, that's an annualized income, so that's considered active income. In Nicaragua, that would be taxed for a foreign owner at the rate of 15%. Timber, is it's not harvested every year, so that's capital gains. And we have a 50% tax exoneration on that tax registered reforester, because Nicaragua's got a reforestation law. And Nicaragua used to have millions of acres of very valuable trees 100, 150 years ago. 
they're now replanting heavily and so there's a 20-year tax exoneration that we have on timber if you're a u.s person of course your u.s tax applies and if you've paid tax to a foreign country then we're not double taxed so you know we pay the difference between what we paid in a foreign country and, and what we owe in the u.s right right well this has been absolutely fascinating alex and how can we learn more about precious timber and some of the other work that you're doing well you can do several things of course you can go to our website which is precious timber.com you can call us on our toll-free number, which is 855-888-6288. You can get free information and download, or actually they're automatically downloaded at preciousTimberProfits.com or ProfitsInCoconuts.com. That's a lot of different ways. But just basically get online or give us a call. We'll send you all the information. We're more of an educational company than we are a sales company, we don't kind of, we think this space should only ever be put into a portfolio by someone that understands it. And so our job is to educate as much as we can. And when I mean educate, I mean, we put you to work. We don't like to give you all the information. We like to provide you with it so that you do your own due diligence. Yep. Makes sense. So Alex, thank you very much for being with us today and for all your time. You're very welcome. Thanks. Appreciate it a lot. We'll be right back. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Alex today. Now, I do highly recommend that you do a little bit of homework on this fascinating asset class. Because when you look around at who's investing in timber, it becomes pretty clear that some of the wealthiest families in the world are the ones involved the most in this asset class. And I think that tells you something, right? I personally always try to keep my eye out for what others are doing, not what they're saying. So some people say not to buy gold, but then you look around and you see China and Russia are hoarding this stuff, right? I mean, they've got to know something. So there's probably a pretty good reason to own some gold. And the wealthiest families in America, as Alex had sort of alluded to, are investing in timber. And it has outperformed virtually every other asset class over the past 100 years. So it might be worth at least learning about how timber might fit into your portfolio. At the very least, I encourage you to learn more about it. Get in touch with Alex, or if you can't remember all of the contact information he had, feel free to shoot me an email at buck at wealthformula.com, and I will shoot uh, the email over to Alex, and he can get you the information. I've got a lot of his paperwork portfolio stuff, and it's pretty fascinating stuff to page through. So Feel free to do that. And that is it for Wealth Formula Podcast for this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.